Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Well, we have a blockbuster episode for you today on the Tech Ed Podcast. Our guest today is the current president of the Young America's Foundation a one-time candidate himself for the President of the United States of America, the 45th governor of my home state of Wisconsin. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, Governor Scott Walker. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So let's start here. It's hard to believe that it's been almost three years now since your last day as governor of the state of Wisconsin, coming up on that anniversary here in a couple of months. Let's just talk a little bit about what is going on in the life of Scott Walker. Well, obviously, in a few moments, we'll talk about what I'm doing lately as the president of Young America's Foundation. But uh, uh, really, for all of 2019 and then to early in 2020, uh, I was doing a lot of speeches across the country. Certainly enjoyed it. Got to see a lot of folks I got to meet over the years as governor all across the nation. Was doing a couple special projects. It was working as the national chairman of a group fighting the push for a balanced budget amendment in our federal government, just like we have in our states and most of our local governments and most of our own homes and businesses. And uh, we was working on things like redistricting and some other targeted projects. But it all led up to this year in 2021 being the new president of Young America's Foundation. I knew that at the tail end of my time as my time wrapped up after eight years as governor, the gentleman who'd been the president of this organization for many decades approached me and told me he was going to retire in 2021 and wanted to know if I'd be interested. And I said, well, I am if you want to do more than just what's being done currently. If you want to reach more young people and reach them at younger ages, then I'm interested in that's what we're doing these days. So it shouldn't surprise any of our listeners that Scott Walker didn't just fade off into retirement and lay low following his terms as governor of the state of Wisconsin, keeping himself busy for several years. And now, as we suggest, the president of the Young America's Foundation. Tell us, Governor, if you would, a little bit about the organization. What's your purpose? What's your mission? What's keeping you busy there? Yeah, at yaf.org, which is a great way if people are interested to find more out about what we do. But simply put, uh, we train the next generation of freedom fighters. This organization has its roots all the way back to 1960, when the group was founded at the home of William F. Buckley, about two years later, Ronald Reagan, then a private citizen, got involved, and it's why we have a long and storied connection to him throughout the years, including currently owning and operating the ranch that he and First Lady Nancy Reagan had outside of Santa Barbara, California, as well as just recently, the Boyd home, one of the homes that the president grew up in at Dixon, Illinois, just across the state line from my home in Wisconsin. And so we, we focus on the same things they've been focused on all throughout that time, free enterprise, individual liberties, strong national defense, pushing for kind of traditional American values. Uh, those are things they pushed in the past. And we do now, started out on college campuses in 98 when we took over the ranch, it extended to a high school program as well. And one of the things I'm doing in a, a new initiative called The Long Game is reaching out even into middle school students and to the parents of elementary school students, again, on campuses, with speeches, with memberships, with chapters, with seminars, with programs, talking about things like free enterprise and individual liberties. 
And I love the focus on K-12. We're going to talk about that quite a bit over the course of our discussion today. You know, your mention of Ronald Reagan's boyhood home in Dixon, Illinois, I believe, right on I-88, if I think, or not too far off of that. For years, I owned a uh, manufacturing company that had a plant in the Quad Cities. And like you, I grew up and spent my time in Southeast Wisconsin, still live here. And that was my route right past that sign that said boyhood home of Ronald Reagan. Didn't realize that our paths would cross in that way. But one of these days, I want to go visit that site. That sounds pretty fascinating. You love it. There's some great stories. And it's a great reminder. I, I was just talking to some high school educators last night from around the country at the Museum of the Bible. And, and I told them a couple of stories from the, the home at Dixon. And it's a great reminder that the things that young people read, the, the influences they have are things that will very likely be with them the rest of their lives. One of the books the president read at Dixon is still up on the bookshelf in the ranch that he had at the end of his life. So a great reminder that the influences, good or bad, on young people will either positively or negatively impact, in many cases, the rest of their life. I think that's so true. And, you know, when we think about those influences and kind of as a way of setting up this next question, I remember back in the 1980s going to a thing called Camp Enterprise that was run by the Rotary. And that was really my first introduction in an academic fashion to this whole idea of the free enterprise system, to entrepreneurship, just a really kind of one of those seminal moments in my life growing up. I know that entrepreneurship is such, and free enterprise system is such a huge, huge focus of your work at YAF. And we already queued up a little bit this discussion around K-12. What do you think, Governor, that K-12 education can be doing to encourage entrepreneurship on the part of students? Well, just teaching objective economics and financial literacy would be a good start. We have, for example, at YAF, we have a center for entrepreneurship and free enterprise, and they really go hand in hand. It's one of those where, you know, a lot of talk about socialism versus capitalism. And these days, just understanding basic economics. It is amazing to me, not only in our K through 12 systems, but oftentimes even talking to college students, it is amazing how illiterate most people are, or not most, many people are, I should say, uh, in terms of basic economics. A good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Art Laffer, Many people know him from the Laffer Curve. He was a top advisor to Ronald Reagan when he was even governor and then president of the United States. He worked in many different administrations. He was a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, a great advocate for economics. We're teaming up with him, uh, for example, to, to tra help train educators just on basic education of economics, because I think that's often lacking. Uh, many times... Even in our schools, the people teaching it might be a, a history teacher, but that's not the same as understanding basic economics. And so economics 101, I think the more we can teach that, along with, I would tie that in with financial literacy, just basic things. I, when I was a kid, uh, it wasn't called financial literacy. We had a shop class and it combined one semester you'd go to shop, one semester you do home economics. People thought home economics was cooking and sewing, and there was a little bit of stuff like that. But it also taught us basic things like how to balance a checkbook back in the day when you had a checkbook. And uh, financial literacy and basic economics, I think, will go a long way. And then opening the door to just understanding that young people, you know, you don't have to be a, a business major to be an entrepreneur. You, know, you can just have a big idea, be really good at something, and then figure out a way to how start up your own business. And I think those sorts of experiences and opportunities, not just to learn about it, but ideally hearing from entrepreneurs, hearing from people, how they started their businesses would go a long way for inspiring our students going forward. You're bringing up some really, really interesting points around 
economics 101, financial literacy among people literally of, of every age and making sure that people understand that side of things, the connection between shop class, which you know we had that too when I was going through school and now we call it tech ed and the connection there between that world and home economics, which should be so much more than learning how to you know fry an egg and make toast, which we also did in home ec, by the way, but learning the financial side of, of managing a budget, managing things at home. I think you just made a really good point around entrepreneurship. So many times we think of entrepreneurs, and, and I remember my courses at Marquette University on entrepreneurship. You were always dreaming of these people that were kind of glossy degrees, really, really nice suits, running these gigantic big corporations. And that was always kind of our image, at least mine anyway, of an entrepreneur. But entrepreneurs come in a whole number of different forms, do they not? We could be a plumber, electricians, contractors, small manufacturers, all of these different routes to entrepreneurship. So let's talk a little bit about what can government do to promote and support the pathway to entrepreneurship, through things like apprenticeships and work-based learning programs and others of the like. Absolutely. This was a, a centerpiece for me as governor, both because I personally believe in technical education, but also because it was a necessity. One of the things I was most proud of during my eight years as governor is, you know, we went from early on when I was running for governor in 2010, unemployment, I think at that point, peaked out at 9.2%. By the time I was done being governor, we, we had multiple times where unemployment was below 3%, which previously had been a historic low in Wisconsin. We were well under that. And I think we can get back to that again in, in the future in Wisconsin and all across the nation. But one of the challenges that came from that good news was that employers would constantly tell us, as many do today, I even hear it lately, not only in Wisconsin, but across the country, who say, I, I got jobs, I just don't have enough people to fill them. And oftentimes, even beyond just technical education, they'd say simple things, you know, just get me people who can show up for work and pass a drug test and I'll, I'll put them to work. Uh, I'll find a way to plug them in. And so I think in general, one of the best things we can do is just model good work habits, uh, not only in our schools, but in our society and our families. But then when it comes to specific skills, one of the things I said repeatedly as governor and still do today and that is, if you want to start your own business, figure out a great skill. You're exactly right. I hear it all the time. I think a lot of us thought it uh, as well when we were young ourselves. And that is, you thought, okay, I gotta go, if I want to start a business, I go to business school. Well, great deference and respect to people go to business school. But the reality is, I told kids in high school for years as governor, the people who go and get a business administration degree overwhelmingly work for someone else. Nothing wrong with that. But they're likely to get a job in the corporate world, you know, maybe work their way up, but they're working for somebody else. I tell these young people who are, you know, got exciting new ideas of things they want to do. I said, go find a skill. Maybe you're a welder. Maybe you're a plumber. Maybe you're good at coding and computers. Maybe you're good in healthcare. Figure out what your skill is. Get really good. Get very proficient in that. And then go out and start your own business. My son, Matthew, is a good example of that. He's 27. Uh, he went and worked right out of school for one of my colleagues at the time, the governor of North Carolina. He did the digital campaign efforts for him. He then came back and worked for a couple of years for Associated Bank, uh, did digital marketing for them. And then he went out with two other guys and they started a business. And today he's got a business of his own where he's got about a dozen employees. That was all because he took that leap of faith. He understood that he, he needed to find a skill. He didn't just go to school to become a, a business major. Again, nothing wrong with that. But he decided how was he going to hone his skills, in this case, 
it was in the digital realm with marketing, but whatever it is, again, it could be welding, could be machining, uh, figure out what that skill is and, and then go out and perfect it and then take that leap. Now, once you get good at that skill, then oftentimes taking in a course here or there on business administration or a marketing plan or a business plan, those are all good things to incorporate as well. But usually most people think about it the other way around. They think they go to learn business first and they don't realize that, no, if you want to start your own business, if you truly want to be an entrepreneur, you need to figure out what your skill sets are, do, do well to perfect that as, as much as you can, and then go take that leap of faith to start a business that evolves around the skill you're good at. It's a great example from your very own family, Governor Walker. And I think you make a great point. I'm not offended at all by the reference to the business degree. I have one. And I give young people the same advice is that, yeah, that's there's nothing wrong with that path. And you can certainly consider that, but know your options and know what decisions you're making. And I, I think we are starting to make some progress now with helping young people, people of all ages, understand the opportunities in the skilled trades, understand the opportunities in areas like automation, advanced manufacturing, connected systems, all these really, really cool career opportunities for our young people. I would tell you anecdotally that I think we're making more progress, believe it or not, in both our urban districts and our rural districts. So at the Tech Ed Podcast, we reach educators, we reach students, we reach companies all over the Midwest, all over the United States. And as we're talking with those folks, and we have meetings with, for instance, a a rural school district, some really cool things going on around Arcadia, Wisconsin, with the help of Ron Wanick and Ashley Furniture, or some of the things that are happening, for instance, in Detroit that we were a part of last year with the Lyft Initiative. We see rural school districts and urban school districts really waking up to the fact that our young people can have these all these amazing options as they're leaving high school. Be honest with you, we're, we're having a little more trouble with some of the suburban districts where many of the parents are still in this mindset that my kid's going to a four-year university and they're going to be on that path. Do you have an idea as we do that maybe sometime in the next several years, we might see the model flipping a little bit where young people who enter the workforce earlier with the right skills, maybe even right out of high school, could be leapfrogging the students that are going on to four-year universities? There's no doubt about it. We saw that, again, during my time as governor. You talked before about apprenticeships. We dramatically increased the state support for apprenticeships. And part of the challenge was even pushing back not only in suburban, but even in, the, for example, the city of Milwaukee, where we had a number of rural school districts that were completely outperforming our largest school district when it came to the number and said, hey, if these school districts in very small towns and very rural areas can put together this many apprenticeships, there's no reason why Bradley Tech and some other great schools in the city of Milwaukee can't do the same. But then the next step with that is what you said about suburban districts. Yeah, if you're out on the, some might call it the cocktail circuit, I call it the beer and broad circuit. But as parents, you know, sitting around, you know, there's a lot of competition about saying, hey, where's your kid going to school? Or they're going to go to Wisconsin. They're going to go to Harvard. They're going to go to Yale. They're going to go to Princeton, wherever it might be. Uh, again, nothing wrong with if that's what your career path leads you to, to go to any of those great schools. But to your point is just to assume that people to be successful automatically have to go there. One of the little things we changed as governor was, again, the state, most scholarships are by the generosity of some great foundations and individuals and corporations, typically at the local level in each school district. But at the state, there were some scholarships the state provided, some assistance was provided for some of the top students. We made a change that some of the criteria previously had top performing students 
were eligible for scholarships to four-year undergraduate colleges and universities. We changed it to allow for our two-year associate degree programs in our technical colleges for students to be eligible there. Now, it didn't mean that there was going to be a massive shift there, but it was just a, a subtle thing to make a point that some of our top high-performing students in high school, some of the top GPA students, in some cases, even the valedictorians, in many cases, were, were students who, who said, hey, for the career path they wanted, a four-year undergraduate degree wasn't the right place. A, a two-year degree was. And, and I often would tell, again, particularly in suburban areas, I'd remind them saying, hey, again, nothing wrong with it, but you know, if you've got a son or daughter who's got a career path that is more appropriate to go to a two-year associate degree program with, they're going to graduate a couple years early, two to three years early in many cases. They're probably going to have next to no or, or no student debt whatsoever because the prices are quite affordable. And when they get out, many cases, particularly in some of the trades and some other key areas in healthcare and mechanics, other things like that, they're probably going to make a whole lot more than the average graduate of a four-year college or university. And so, you know, unless you're going on to graduate school, unless you're in engineering, unless you're in specific areas of healthcare, many of the graduates, particularly in the arts and sciences, again, nothing wrong with it, but many of them are going to come out saddled with major debt and they're going to be making a fraction of what our graduates at our technical colleges are making. And so not that it's all about money, but it's a great reminder that just from a realistic standpoint, and it goes back to what we were talking about before, you get an associate degree you, you fine-tune, you hone in your skills. It doesn't mean you're just going to do that necessarily for the rest of your life, which is fine if you do. My, my grandfather, Al Walker, was a machinist for 42 years. He lived, a, he lived a great life. But you're also, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you can take that skill you learn and, and hone at a technical college and apply it to starting your own business and then hire other people to work for you who do those exact same things. Governor, you're singing the song of the Tech Ed podcast. We make that point all the time. I spent 23 years running, leading Midwestern manufacturing companies. That was my career before getting over to the education side about five or six years ago. And I still talk about you know manufacturing, and it's certainly true of some of the other areas you referenced, mechanics, skilled trades. Those are still the places where you can start out sweeping the floor and end up running the company or pause anywhere in between and have a really amazing, family-supporting, fascinating career. And by the way, it's not just the individuals that start out sweeping the floor. To your point, you can get a huge head start going to a technical college, going to a community college, learning a skill, and it's not a career decision for the rest of your life. It opens up all of these unbelievable options. You know, the world of work, Governor, is changing in so many different ways. You've already chatted about your grandfather, Al Walker's experience as a machinist for, what did you say, 40 years? Was he a... 41 years, yep. 41 years. Absolutely amazing career. I have relatives as well that had positions, jobs, careers in the skilled trades that literally lasted decades, supported families, created incredible standards of living for them. That world of work is changing. And today, technology, the associated skill sets, they're changing quickly as well. One of the things that we're finding as a potential solution to this shortage of skilled talent is working with and, and encouraging industrial employers to upskill their own workforce. So in other words, if you have somebody as one example, attending a machining center, we can take that individual and upskill them into 
as an example, an electromechanical technician, and then rehire or go back into the workforce and hire somebody that maybe has a little less skill, but is easier to find, that can be one solution to shoring up the shortage of skilled talent. But that's really going to take a commitment on the part of employers to recognize their role in training their incumbent workforce, especially now when we use terms like Industry 4.0 and connected manufacturing and advanced manufacturing that really demonstrate how fast and how quickly technology is changing in the world of work. So are there things that government can do to support employers in terms of figuring out how to upskill their incumbent workers? Yeah, that's something we did before. Again, when we were at a high watermarks in terms of more employment, more people being employed in Wisconsin, for example, the last few years I was in office than ever before, I think we're going to see some of the same things all across the country. So a number of things. I, I do think, again, I'm not a big spender, but I do think it, it is money well spent, not just education in general, but particularly for ongoing uh, education. But I think at any level, training, ongoing education is incredibly important. It's something that government can help out with. And in our case, we didn't get a supplement from the government here at YF, but but I certainly think particularly for small businesses, for manufacturers, for other key industries, we provided grants through the Department of Workforce Development that tied into that kind of training and focus. And you're right, you can train people up. And then for a lot of our manufacturers, we were really hurting for employees. As I said, they'd say, hey, we'll, we'll be engaged. We'll train people on site. Just get us people with basic employability skills, you know, showing up for work, coming there on time, asking for days off, simple things that we all, many of us learned from our parents and our grandparents and our surroundings. And then people can pass a drug test. Uh, But I'd say the government can help support uh, employers that want to provide that kind of training. And then as employers, whether you're the private sector, the public sector or not, budget for it, plan for it continue it. Don't just expect people to get trained on the way into a job. Continuously find ways to update and and train them along the way. It's part of what my son, I mentioned, Matt does. Once I ask him, you know, how do you stay on top of all this new technology? He's like, well, every week I'm getting continued education. I'm I'm going on the sites uh, for Apple and Microsoft and all these different products and getting the latest out there. I think the same thing's true in other areas. Yeah, we really have changed our whole view of lifelong learning and the understanding that we constantly have to keep our skills and abilities and competencies sharp if we're going to remain relevant in this new world of work. So great point on that question as well, Governor Walker. He's now the president of Young America's Foundation, the 45th governor of the great state of Wisconsin. Scott Walker is our guest today on the Tech Ed Podcast. We're going to turn our discussion Now, Governor Walker, a little bit to public policy, maybe turn the clock back on your career a little bit and go back to your time as Milwaukee County Executive. So for our audience, prior to serving as governor of Wisconsin, you were the county executive for eight years. And I think as a result of that, you're a lot closer in many ways to understanding the intricacies of local government, especially in an urban environment. You know, I think it would be hard for us to say that most of our urban areas are better off today than they were five or 10 years ago. If you could, and this is my my question that Melissa loves, our producer loves when I ask, if I could give you the proverbial magic wand and you could make three changes in terms of the urban environment here in the United States of America, what would those three things be? Yeah, that's a great question. I think you're right. It's not just five, 10 years ago. You think back to the war on poverty back in the 1960s before any of us were born, or either of us at least some of the listeners might be, but you know, things haven't dramatically changed, even though the federal government declared a war on poverty, not limited to, but often largely including 
or large urban areas across the country. So if I could just wave a magic wand, uh, that's a great question. I, I think three things would be in, in its larger context, uh, two related to education and one related to, to families. One, an education of I could ensure that every child leaving elementary school could read at or above grade level. That would be phenomenal because even though that sounds like a very targeted issue, what we found is that kids that aren't able to read are most likely to drop out and dropout rates lead to big problems in terms of jobs, employment, government assistance, you name it. So if a kid, regardless of economic status, regardless of race, if every kid in our nation, but particularly in our, our large urban areas, was able to read at or above rating level, uh, typically the science says if you go from about six months to third grade learning to read, from that point on, you use reading to learn. And it's why, sadly, a lot of kids drop out because they're not reading at that level. The, the following grades get tougher and tougher. So first would be reading at grade level. Secondly, kind of ties into that. And, and I, I'm a product of government-run schools. Both my kids graduated from Wauwatosa East High School. So it's not a knock on our traditional public schools. I think there's really great examples of that. But I ultimately think giving parents as many good options as possible. I mentioned my two sons. Matt went to Marquette, private Catholic school for college Alex went to the University of Wisconsin, obviously a, a government institution. It was the right pick for each of them, for their careers, for the type of school they wanted to. Uh, nobody thinks that's crazy when I tell them that. To me, I'd like to make sure that every family in Wisconsin and across the nation had the option to, uh, to pick the school that was right for them. Sadly, uh, all too often, many of our larger urban areas across the country are plagued with schools that are underperforming. For a variety of reasons, some of which is the first point on third grade uh, reading attainment. But if I could tie in reading at grade level, along with giving parents the right to choose whether they want to go to a traditional uh, public school, a charter school, a private school, a religious school, or even just homeschool their kids, if we gave every parent the choice to choose what was right for their son or daughter, I think that would be a tremendous asset as well. And then the third thing is if I could ensure that families were intact. On all these issues, the Brookings Institution years ago did a study I referenced for quite some time as governor. It's been updated many times since. What they said is these four things. If you graduate from school, if you get a job, and if you wait until you're married and at least 21 to have a child, uh, the data overwhelmingly proves that people who do those four things, 98% of them never live a day in poverty. In fact, overwhelmingly, uh, they're living middle class for better lives. And it, it, you know, those all sound like things your parents told you, but just the data shows that they're not just moral imperatives. They're logical ones as well. They're scientifically proven facts. And so that's why I say if I could get kids reading at grade level, if I give parents the right choice for their education, if I could have intact families, mothers and fathers intact with their children, you know, you kind of follow that criteria that logical step, graduate, get a job, get get married and, and wait till you're at least 21 before having children. I think those things would do phenomenally well, not only in our larger areas, but anywhere in America, uh, because that's a lot of where our, our challenge is, regardless of race. It's, it's, some people think, well, that's targeted towards minority families. No, increasingly that early out of wedlock and without a job challenge is affecting children, whether they're their parents or Black or white, Hispanic, we're Hmong, it really, it's a challenge overall.
So intact families, as many options as possible from an education standpoint, reading at or above grade level during their education pathway. If Governor Scott Walker had his magic wand, those would be the three things that we would have. You know, I have to mention, I knew there was something I liked about your son, Matt, his educational pathway being Marquette University and before that, Wauwatosa East, because that is exactly the pathway that I took. So I'm a, I'm a Wauwatosa East alum and a Marquette alum as well. Of course, I was at Wauwatosa East during the Reagan administration. I know Matt came years and years later. But speaking of the Reagan administration, YAF is so deeply rooted in so many ways in the Reagan tradition. You've talked about the Reagan Ranch. You've talked about his boyhood home in the state of Illinois. In as much as he held genuine conservative values, it also seems to me that he was able to inspire Americans and build relationships across the entire political spectrum. And it was certainly a different time. But why does that seem so much harder to do today than it used to be? Yeah, you're right. I mean, people forget about it. We just celebrated August 13th was the 40th anniversary of Ronald Reagan signing the largest tax cut in American history. He actually signed it up at the Reagan Ranch. Uh, unlike the normal bill signings we see today, there was nobody standing behind him. It was just him and his dog uh, sitting next to him. He was in jeans and boots and I think it was a clear message to Washington that that tax cut was about sending money back to the American people to use in their homes, uh, not in our nation's capital. But the, people forget about it. To get that done, in 1980, he had, with the force of his election, had, for the first time in quite a long time, had gotten a Republican Senate, but the House was clearly controlled by Democrats. And so he had to get a good number of Democrats to go along with his tax policy. People like uh, former Congressman Phil Graham and others who were then at that point kind of blue dog Democrats from places like Texas and elsewhere, he had to use the power of persuasion. He used the bully pulpit for all the talk about it being a great communicator. It wasn't because he, he was reading a teleprompter. These were things he truly felt and was passionate about, ideas he really put together after years of talking with people, not just elected office, but going back to his time even when he traveled the country for General Electric, talking to employees and talking to crowds. And so I think it was one of those where he wasn't just speaking to his base. He, he was talking to all Americans. Sadly, today, I, I see, I think social media and cable news on either end of the spectrum are driving this huge gap that we see, particularly social media outlets like Twitter, uh, where the, you know, the most popular people are those who say the most outrageous and obnoxious things politically on either end of the spectrum. And, and the media, uh, many cases, the national media buy into that. And uh, we need to get beyond that. We actually need to listen. One of the things that I find to be very encouraging is we do extensive polling of high school and college-age students just to see where trends are at, to stay relevant and connected. And one of the things we ask them about is, where do you get your information from? And amazingly, despite what you hear in the media, it's not Twitter, it's not Facebook, it's not any number of other things. It's top of the list was YouTube. And why I say that's so exciting is with the programs we run at Young America's Foundation, we still have lectures on campuses and in schools across the nation. Uh, we don't produce a pre-programmed package to put on YouTube. We actually just put up live speeches and then in particular the Q&A, and we've seen dramatic growth. We're at over 600,000 subscribers. We're over a billion views that people have of our content. Why I say I'm optimistic about that is I, I think people are craving more than just a meme, more than just a quip, more than just an attack. But sadly, that's where the most popular people are in outlets like Twitter. And what we can learn from Reagan, you know, he just two days ago was the 57th anniversary of him giving a speech called The Time for Choosing. You go back and read that speech, 
it would be as relevant today as it was when he gave it on October 27, 1964. And so we need to have more longer content. We need to stop pitting one group of Americans versus another and instead talk about why we love this nation and how we want the same freedoms and opportunities that we inherited uh, to be passed on to the next generation, regardless of race, regardless of background, regardless of age, uh, that those freedoms and opportunities should be available for everyone. So very important and impossible to disagree, Governor. You know, you referenced this polarization that we've seen across the political spectrum. And, you know, I I like to say I'm actually probably always been a little bit right of center, but I have seen so many of my liberal friends move so far to the left. So many of my conservative friends move so far to the right that I'm now a centrist. You know, I find myself almost right into the middle because of that polarization. One of the books that I think really, really highlights that well, I don't know if you've read The Coddling of the American Mind, but it really goes into this whole idea of how our college campuses here in the United States, which were once bastions for free speech, and we protected that free speech above almost anything, have become really, really challenging in terms of who is allowed to say what, who gets canceled, who doesn't. So what do you think the leaders of our nation's colleges and universities should be doing to make sure that all students feel like they can speak freely on our college campuses? Not only need to stand up for free speech, they need to do something about it. They need to make that enforceable. We talked before about you know our time frame being in school when Reagan was in office. I think there's been over time, there's been a, a certainly an obvious transition, particularly in institutions of higher education, from being more objective to being more left liberal bias to political correctness. But now what we see with the young people we work with is just, as you've mentioned, outright cancel culture where if you don't, uh, if you don't completely adhere to a very radical indoctrination, it's not even just a matter of getting a good grade or not. It, it's pushback from fellow students, it's being blocked not only on campus but in social media. My hope would be, you know, certainly the the U.S. Constitution via the Bill of Rights guarantees the freedom of speech. It, it is a constitutionally protected right, but it should be revered, not just protected. It should be revered on our college campuses. Yet today, that's oftentimes where it's most at risk. And that's dangerous. And that's not just coming at it from a conservative spec perspective. But Bill Myers, you know, who's on HBO, has a show, pretty irrelevant, very unabashed liberal. But he and I and others like us agree on that issue. This should be a, a uniting issue across political beliefs. If we ever want to get together and, and have a more unified nation, we've got to respect that people have the right to be heard, even if we disagree with them. I, for years... Uh, for example, still read things like the Washington Post and the New York Times, not because there's a whole lot in there I agree with, but I, I want to hear other ideas. I want to understand them. I, I want to really listen, not just breeze over them, but understand them. Uh, oftentimes, uh, I'll still disagree, but it actually makes me think longer and harder about my own beliefs and my own uh, positions and helps me fine tune those. But it also on occasion allows me to think, oh, well, part of it there, they maybe they got a point. Maybe I I haven't fully thought or considered that. And that should be true in society, in a, in a just and civil society. We should be doing that in general, but particularly at college campuses, we have to do that. I would just add that quickly. Go talk to people, everyday people. I was just to say that the best thing I did was I go talk to folks and, and communicate as though I was talking to the couple from Janesville down the road from where I grew up, where maybe dad worked at the GM plant before it closed, was now working for a little bit less at some other manufacturer. Maybe mom was the nurse, the local school or local hospital, two kids in public schools, 
trying to make ends meet. They weren't watching Fox. They weren't watching CNN or MSNBC. They were just helping their kids out with homework and trying to take care of things every night. If I could communicate with them and listen to them in a way that made them understand that I understood what they were going through and, and, and really appreciated that, that was the key going forward. We don't do enough of that. We kind of go into our tribes and we figure out that what we believe and only listen to them. And then we're shocked that nobody can go along. It's music to my ears, Governor Walker, because I couldn't agree more. We have one final question for you in the time that we have remaining. And it's a question we ask all of our guests here on the Tech Ed Podcast. If you could give one piece of advice to a high school sophomore as they consider their future pathway, what would that be? I'd say uh, take in as much information as you can. What I mean by that is read as much as you can, but also listen. You know, there's a real tendency, particularly when you're out proving yourself, making your case that you you know want to tell the world what you believe, and you can certainly do that. But, but particularly at that point in your life, take in as much information as you can. Read everything you can. Find what you're interested, in, and then read about it. Read about it. Read about it. Read about it. There's so many great books. There's things online. But then also talk to people. Ask. If you're interested in a particular area or if you're just curious about different things, go interview people, go listen to them, go hear their stories, hear how they made the choices they made in their life. Just take in as much information as you can. Take in as much as you can. Governor Walker's advice for a high school sophomore. We have taken in a ton here on the Tech Ed Podcast today. Governor Walker, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.